I have a dream that all men are created equal. Hello everyone, welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host Ian Kath and this is episode 54. I hope you're well. So I'm very well. I'm just having a bit of fun here. I've, for the first time in my life before I've started recording, I've actually done some voice exercises just to warm my voice up and I think it's actually worked. I'll tell you what it has done is it certainly jeered me up a bit and now I've got to calm myself down a bit so I don't blast this microphone off the desk. It's, um, it's quite interesting what a few... Uh, voice exercises will do to a person's personality yeah it's quite staggering anyway but back on track uh, this is episode 54 and um, I've been quite busy lately doing all sorts of things I've been working particularly hard on create your life story the new project I've got over at createyourlifestory.com if you haven't heard about it or if you haven't checked it out uh, it'd be great if you want to pop on over there and have a look at it it's all about recording people's life stories you know sort of a biography thing that's what I'm doing over there I'm helping to teach people how to do it so that they can record themselves or somebody they care about. As a matter of fact, just the other day I was talking to my daughter, and she's 19, and I was uh, mentioning to her about, she had mentioned to me previously about recording her maternal grandmother, and I said, yeah, no worries, I'll help you with anything that you want if you want to do that. And uh, then I said to her, I said, hey, have you actually thought about recording yourself? Because I've been thinking about it. Imagine if you could listen to yourself when you were 19, listen back to yourself, what you thought about your life, what you thought it was going to be like and all your dreams and aspirations. And now that you've got a few years further down track, the way it's actually turned out, you know, how naive and immature you were or maybe how profound you were and that you actually understood stuff. So I've suggested that to her recently and uh, I'll just let let her think about it a little bit more. Anyway, this show, this isn't about create your life story. This is about your story, and uh, that's over at yourstorypodcast.com. Um, throw a chat in front of that, chat at yourstorypodcast.com, and you can get hold of me and uh, all the usual sort of ways, Facebook fan page, iTunes, links, um, and all the usual sort of thing. I've mentioned it many times to you before, so um, if you want to support the show, go and stumble it and dig it and all the usual sort of things. The music, of course, as you can hear, this little bit of jazz that I found. I got over at Iota Promonet at Iota Alliance. If you like what you hear and you want to download this particular track, you can go to the end of the post and you can get it for free. Just uh, click on the download button and you get this particular track. But if you like the rest of the album, go to their site at uh, Iota Alliance and you can actually purchase the music so the artist gets a bit of money and I like to use them because they help me with the music and it's all royalty free and uh, it supports the artist and it supports me. Today's show is a bit of an interesting one. I want to start off by mentioning to you that yeah, I've got a little bit of an interest in this particular subject because my mum, who is 77 years old and lives in Toowoomba, Uh, has been messing around with a bit of this technology in recent years and I've learnt something fairly new which is all about this particular episode. She, you see, she's quite an independent woman. Talk about independence, she's a bit belligerent at times in her independence. But 
she likes to do things on her own. So she's got a normal domestic suburban block in Toowoomba. And in her yard, she has turned the entire backyard into a veggie and herb garden. And she grows medicinal herbs and culinary herbs for herself and all her vegetables. And she, she works really hard. She's put a bore in for water and she's got water tanks to catch rainwater and for the bore water. But she's also put in some solar panels. And she's put in the solar panels uh, and batteries so that she's independent of the power supply. And I said to her, hey, mum, why don't you just plug it into the grid and feed your energy into the grid? And then when you need extra power, you can pull it back out of the grid. And that way you're using the grid as a battery. And she said, no, no, don't want to do that. I want to be independent. And I went, OK, well, you please yourself. I thought that was a bit of a silly idea, to be honest, because I thought, well, you know, if you're adding power to the grid, you're going to be supporting the environmentally friendly aspects of solar generation and reducing carbon footprint and all that sort of thing and then you've also got the convenience of being able to draw back out of the grid when you need to when you know you've got those cloudy days like we have here today well as it turns out maybe i didn't actually have my facts right maybe i'd bought into what had been told to me out there by the system by the people who had vested interests in this whole uh, feeding power into the grid off solar panels a few months back, a very good friend of mine mentioned to me that his dad had done a whole heap of research on both the environmental and the economic impact of photovoltaic domestic power generation and feeding that energy back into the grid and how that all works. And the results weren't as we expected. Maybe my mum actually had a point. But this is not about her. This is Ken's story. Hello everybody, welcome back to your story. It's the 28th of July, 2010. I'm sitting here with Ken Harrison. Welcome to the show, Ken. Welcome. I want to talk to you, Ken, because your son is a good friend of mine and he mentioned to me that you've been doing a bit of work out of personal interest on the environmental impact of modern technologies and how that all works. And and you look at me quizzically there because I'm not exactly sure what this is all about. But I want to talk about that stuff. But before we get into that, let's go and have a look at the backstory for this, this subject. And I think that's incredibly relevant. So we need to look at that. You're retired now. Yes. And how old are you? Yeah. Uh, 79. Okay. So you're not a young fella. No. <laughs> what was your career when you were working? Uh, from... First off, I served an apprenticeship at Garden Island as an electrical fitter and mechanic. Which is the, the old dockyard in Sydney yeah. Harbour. No, yeah. uh, Navy dockyard. Yep. I went from there to the University of Technology, as it was then. Later, it became the University of New South Wales as an instrument mugger. Okay. And from there to the University, Australian National University in Canberra. And I went there as started in the John Curtin School of medical research as a laboratory technician. Uh, incidentally, the lowest technical grading in the university, other than tradesmen of the technical range. And I stayed at the ANU for just on 30 years. And in this time, I was, besides working, I'd started going to tech college and, and I did mechanical engineering and industrial electronics and business management. I crept up the ladder from there to chief engineer when that bloke retired and uh, ultimately to 
head of Buildings and Grounds Division of the Australian National University. So this is electrical engineering? Uh, this is all breeds of engineering, responsible for everything that came into the university that wasn't academic, financial, personnel, and wasn't computing, it was mine. A lot of experience and it covers everything, like I was responsible for water supply, sewerage, telephone, computer cabling, roads, traffic, uh, okay. security. So you've got your head right. Planning everything, you know. Yeah. Like, like uh, very much like a, a uh, general manager of a council, except yes. building a ground was much bigger than most councils. Yes. <laughs> With a very strong bent on engineering. Mm. So that led you down a path of optimising the power infrastructure of the university. Mm. Tell me about that. Uh, when the first energy crisis hit in 1972, uh, the university at that stage had uh, two central boiler house systems that pumped hot water around the site. The hot water was used for heating domestic hot water and for heating the buildings. And they burnt oil. And our oil price went up 142%, I think, overnight, one hit. has <laughs> caused a bit of a flurry. So I got hived off to do a full survey of all the energy used on the ANU, how it was used, why it was used, how much, and what alternatives would there be? What was the most economic answer to what should the university do? And that took me uh, ooh, a long time, something like 12 months. I did nothing else. I was hived off into a room where nobody even knew my telephone number, <laughs> so I didn't get distracted and produced this energy sources report, which was quite a, a time. So that started the interest in it. Uh, as a result, at that stage, we did something we probably wouldn't do now, but we went all electric uh, and became a, the biggest consumer of electricity outside of a county council in Australia. And the one metre in the ANU used, I think it was 68 gigawatt hours a year, which is a Huge consumption. Well, you had one metre that all this current was flowing through. <laughs> yeah. It would have been spinning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was 33,000 volt the metre. So yeah. When we had uh, 22 substations on the site. And all. So we invented, a, or I had caused to have invented a computer control system that uh, we could limit our uh, demand, maximum demand, to 18 megawatts. The connected load of the site was something like 64 megawatts. But by sharing it round and nominating things that were, could be viewed as sacrificial, you know, they could be turned off for a while and then brought back on and uh, we could keep the, the loading to where we was economic to pay for it, at about 18 megawatts, which still made us a huge customer. Uh, no, well, no, no other authority had a one-point one customer of that magnitude. Did all that work and that got me interested in energy and of course I was responsible for the budget line of the ANU for what energy it did consume and how it consumed it and all the rest of that. So you've retired and you've got this background and in the last while you've been exploring this other thing mm. that you're telling people about. Tell mm -hmm. us about this. How did you get into this? This is through U3A. I'm a member of U3A with the University of Third Age which is where I saw fogies to stop going mentally <laughs> around the bend. And there's some amazingly interesting people in it. What U3A does, it's a, a 
university in the uh, sort of traditional style of the original universities where people met to discuss things of mutual interest. They weren't degree factories, you know, when they started. They, they were an exchange of ideas, ideas. and information yeah. and philosophies and things. Okay, I didn't realise that. Yeah, that's the original university. and oh, Melting pots of knowledge. And that's what UCA aims to be. You've got all this wealth of talent in your elderly age group and they encourage them to join up and uh, when they feel the, the urge to run a course and or do a session for a course or something like that, people come along and listen and learn. And About two, three years ago, I decided I'd do one just on uh, about the electrical industry, uh, you know, how the power gets to you and uh, all the stages and how it's controlled and those sort of things and produced a paper handout, you know, which last year, some discussion on the carbon emissions problem, you know, because the, it was starting to hot up the debate about global warming and all the rest of it. There's a fair bit of drivel in the press and media generally, misinformation, poor information, hopeless information. So I thought I'd try and present things so people could get a bit better idea of than what they they get from watching the television. And in among that, I put a, a chapter about domestic grid-connected domestic photovoltaic generation. We've got nothing against solar or trying to go solar, except it is not the panacea that many people think it is, you know, that they, we can convert to solar and forget all about oil and coal and everything else. That was that previous paper, incidentally, came up with the figure that for New South Wales alone, to stand its chance of doing it by solar, we'd need a solar collector of 550 square kilometres, which is quite a big, <laughs> big thing. Uh, totally ridiculous now, the $3.7 trillion worth of collectors or something, and uh, even that wouldn't last a full day without... If the sun wasn't 75% shining, it wouldn't get through one day, and then what do you do about the night time, all these sort of things. You know? So I tracked through all those, what sort of forms of energy are available to New South Wales, and there's not much. There's only coal and a bit of hydro, and not much of that either, and not much chance of any more because we're a dry continent. We don't have mountains and things to make dams, so the hydro's about at the end of its tether. You know, you might get another 50 megawatts if you're lucky. And there is absolutely nothing can take over from coal. Right, well, as a result of that previous one, looking at the options of the whole lot, you know, all the possible energy sources, wave motion, wind, as I said, on photovoltaic generation, and particularly grid connected. And then the government came up with its feed-in tariff. They caused the a uh, person who has the generation facility to be paid 60 cents a kilowatt hour for everything they produce, it's either by solar or, or by wind, which is a ridiculously high amount of money. It's How much uh, do we pay for a power? Four or five cents a unit, and they're now going to pay 60 cents a unit for it. And uh, the only way they're going to get that back is by whopping the price of everything up, and they're probably still not going to get it all back. So it's, it's uh, three times the the retail charge at the moment, you know, you get it for about 19 point something cents a unit, so 
it's three times that. It's 17 times what it costs to produce it at a coal-fired station and something like nine or ten times the cost of producing it anywhere else of any of the other alternatives. So it's a hugely high cost. So we produced this next paper. One main reason that a lot of people I talked to who were going this way and going for grid-connected solar uh, photovoltaics were doing it in the belief that they were saving the planet. They were saving CO2. And they're not. And they're not saving one drop of CO2 and I don't think the system ever will because the system is such that it can't discriminate against, you know, discriminate what is being produced by that and do something by the solar and what is being produced by coal and sorting it all out so they stop producing the coal one. But, <laughs> yeah, but if, if we need 100, if community needs 100 units of electricity mm-hmm. and it's all being coal-fired at the moment, if we can replace 20 units of that with solar generated power, mm-hmm. can't we wind the generation plants back to 80%? Uh, you, you could, but there's no way of knowing how to do it. If the system had uh, every grid-connected solar monitored continuously as to what they were producing, because that's up and down like a yo and the sun disappears and varies, and if that could be relayed back to the... Uh, coal-fired generation system and control those accordingly and throttle them back, sure, you would start saving some, but there's no such system at the moment. Uh, I think it'd be technically possible, but it'd be hugely expensive <laughs> to do it. Would you have yeah. to have a, um, a means of reading the output from each yeah, individual solar? Yeah, you'd have to go equipment. through a massive computer to work out how, how much everybody's feeding in and and you'd have to have a feedback from the solar panels on each yeah. house. Yeah, okay. everybody has. Right. So yeah. what is the current system? If we haven't got that feedback of information to the power mm. generation plants, mm. what system do we use at the moment? The aim of, with the coal-fired uh, generators has always been to run them as close to 100% load as possible because that's where they've been designed to be their most efficient. Isn't all that threshold efficient at any rate, mind you, in, in an overall sense. They vary from about 33 to 36%, depending on how so old the uh, thing so is. So you've got 100 kilojoules in a lump of coal, and you've mm-hmm. got 36, 38 kilojoules that go into your stove. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? That, that sort of thing, right. yeah. Very hard to describe this uh, without graphs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the overall load pattern for the whole grid, New South Wales grid, and you've got a Wiggly line goes along pretty high. It's up around 15 gigawatts, something like that. Uh, there's a big block of that called the base load. It's the highest block under that graph that can remain constant. The graph, the bottom of the graph yeah, is from, the top of the base load. Yeah, that's yep. right. That base load is provided largely, almost entirely, by the coal-fired. That would be subsidised by... Tumor 3, which is the biggest of the hydros and the only one that can look like running continuously. These are the big dams in the Snowy River scheme mm. down south. But uh, uh, all those, Tumor 3 is a, virtually a flow of the river. It's all, it can run all the time because it, it's always going past. So it would be in the base load. The rest is coal. Yep. And then there's another block up there. The next biggest block you can get 
below the line still. Uh, we provided by whatever else is available, you know, wind, uh, there's not much solar at the moment. And uh, biomass and calcium gas and waste gas recovery, you know, all sorts of things are out there making their little bits. They'd fill that next gap. And that still bumps up into the peaks, particularly the morning peak and the evening peak. And they're provided by, largely now, by a big gas turbine planted near Munmora. And that's because gas, you can turn it on and off quickly? Very quickly, yeah. Yep. And uh, also some of the hydros would also be available for filling in that. that. That's how the system's always been run. So this is solar photovoltaic production. It's well up in the second layer still. It goes nowhere near the base load. And the base load wouldn't know it's there, so the coal fire just keep hammering away at the 100% producing all the CO2 right. there, uh, unless they were told to do otherwise. And they haven't got this automatic system so, to do it. So if we start generating a heap of solar power, all it would do is maybe the gas turbines wouldn't get turned on as often. Uh, the gas turbine doesn't get turned on really until the peaks. That's all it's used for, peak power generation. Uh, but no, the, the easiest thing to get throttled back is some of the other nice eco ones at any rate, you know, a wind or something so like that. Are you saying here, Ken, that basically we've got all these power generation out there just humming along burning coal and it doesn't matter how much solar, wind, geothermal, whatever that we generate, those power stations are going to keep humming along. They're not going to be impacted by the well, green technologies. They're not going to do it automatically. Unless we put in the infrastructure you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, I can't readily see of any other other way. You could just start throttling them back every now and then to see what happens, you know. Keep turning them down until, OK, it's still all working. <laughs> but that's a bit risky. So the... the um, well, yeah very expensive machines can break because they're not running a good efficiency then too. So the average Mr and Mrs Brown who've got their 2.4 kids and their solar panels on their roof who have put that there so that they can put power into the grid mm. to do the right thing by the planet, mm. is that wasted? I reckon it is, yeah. They're not... Uh, oh, well, it's, no, it's not wasted, I don't suppose, but they're not doing what they think they're doing. They're not saving the planet. So now with the, when the 60 cents bit came in, a lot of people are not thinking about saving the planet, but they think, I can make a buck out of this. Right, so uh, the, the idea of the 60 cents is to encourage people to put in to the infrastructure. Mm. And then, but isn't that valid? Once the infrastructure is in place, even though it's subsidised at the moment, then there's going to be a tipping point of balance where there should hopefully be enough solid power generated that they can actually significantly, well, if not wind back the power generation at least pick up the increase in need for power. I think the thing you've got to understand here is that it's a trouble with all the alternatives, the wind and the solar. The coal-fired ones have just got to be throttled back and still kept online waiting for when the sun disappears because if they take them off, you're going to a blackout, you know, no one's going to like that. So they've got to be available there to pick up the load immediately to the solars or whatever else stops producing it. They suffer from, as the load drops on them, as you drop the load on them, and, uh, and then you get to a, a point where it isn't going to fall anymore. There's, they, these machines can, in fact, run on in a condition 
called the bypass operation, where they remain connected to the grid, ready to load, but at zero load, not producing anything. But they're still spinning. They're still fire, still, still coal in the boilers. And they, they spin with a high CO2 penalty. Uh, I worked it out as best I could, and I think I'm being extremely generous that a, a machine running in that in that bypass phase would be producing 200 tonnes of CO2 an hour for producing no electricity. But they can't do that forever. Differential heat through the turbine, it cools down with the low steam to right. one end and it starts... Uh, ex- Expansion's not uniform, and that's bad news, so they can only do it for a limited time. So uh, in this block of power that we turned the base load at the moment uh, would require about 13 of the major 21 major units in New South Wales to be online, and they'd probably have a 14th one online because you've got to have some standby in case one of them dies, because you know, not, they take 20 to... Oh, 12 to 24 hours to get one of these things online from coal. You know, if you say, I want the power out of that, well, you've got to book it 24 hours ahead, otherwise you don't get any. If you've got a million people on the grid, you'd have such a big gap down into that base load that you would have to have, of those 13 or 14 units that would be online, you would have to throttle nine or ten of those back to uh, zero production or bypass. And that's okay for an hour. Well, maybe some of them can go four hours. Uh, after the hour, they've got to go back on or be turned off altogether. You can't leave them in that mode. So you've got to bring them back on. If you're going to bring them back on and not interfere with the solar bit, you've got to have another nine to be online to go down to, to zero load to match that. And, and, and there are only before them. So you've got to have another five yeah. running all the time. So you've got the... And while you're bringing things up and down, they're not running at any efficiency, are they? No. Yeah. And I did a little sum on that, that if that's the way it goes, besides the nightmare of trying to do it, you know, and, and drive a system in that sort of mode, it'd be absolutely ridiculous. Mm. But the... Uh, I, my calculation of 200, buck, 200 tonnes an hour in running in that mode, which I think is light on... But even at that, uh, in running that sort of system, the machines being run in that method would produce uh, about 36,000 tonnes of CO2 in a day. And the absolute best, if it was a raving day and all those solars were mounted right, doing it right and everything was right, they would save about 36,000 tonnes of CO2. So all this money and effort to save nothing. You know? right. uh... So are we saying that if everybody in the state whacked solar panels and wind generators up and mm-hmm. we try to generate as much base load as possible because we had solar panels everywhere, mm-hmm. we would still have to have turbines spinning, pumping out CO2 and mm-hmm. not producing electricity? Mm-hmm. And the, the Unless we go to another baseload technology. Yeah, well, there isn't any. Unless we go, like, nuclear. <laughs> nuclear. Well, if you go nuclear, you're not worrying about the CO2 anyway because no, you're not right. producing any. But, but we're still producing, <coughs> producing baseload power. Hmm. What about hot rock technology? Nothing happened yet. There's probably a lot of people having a look for it, and, and I think they'll, they'll find it too. Can you describe hot rock? Yeah, in, uh, yeah. roughly. It's still a steam turbine, but instead of coal firing it, you just use the heat gain from the hot rock. 
you got to bore a couple of holes down into the into the earth into suitable geographic uh, geological structure. Uh, that can be uh, two to three kilometres below the surface, and you pump water down into that, and it gets heated up and comes back up as steam, which you use to drive your turbine, and uh, condense that and pump it back down again. So it, it's just really like a subterranean boiler. <laughs> it's, it's making and your own... the other technology remains much the same. Yeah, it's making uh, your own geothermal, isn't it? Now, they come at a fair energy cost because pumping the amount of water you've got to down there to turn into steam isn't cheap, you know. Pumping anything three or four kilometres, particularly <laughs> if it happens to have verticality about it, is is uh, expensive business. So, And it's an improved sure. technology as yet. I don't think there's much doubt about the... Uh, yeah, it has been done overseas. It, it, they, they exist, yeah. Oh, really? Mm. Okay. Because okay. I know the test well here hasn't mm. no. isn't operating. The, the huge load in New South Wales is around Sydney, of course, and down the eastern seaboard, but mostly in Sydney. And if you find one that happens to be out back end of Burke somewhere, it's not going to be really all that good because it's so far away that uh, you, your transmission losses, the, the cost of building the transmission in the first place are enormous, and then the losses in it are huge too. So... And I mean, uh, you said jokingly that old Australian saying about the back of Burke, but I believe the geothermal fields potentially it's quite, are, quite possibly lit- out are there. literally <laughs> out the yeah. back of Burke. Yeah. They're far western New South Wales. Yeah. The cost of those, uh, uh, because of the pumping cost and everything, they use a considerable proportion of its output is used in pumping the water down to keep it going. Mm. So the cost per unit production out of them is going to be a lot higher than it is from coal. Mm. Okay, well, Ken Harrison, I'm going to wave my magic wand <laughs> and I'm going to take your knowledge and I'm going to put it into you as a innovative, entrepreneurial 30-year-old's body and you're going to have an opportunity to have a career based on making it work. Mm-hmm. What system would you suggest? For New South Wales? Yeah, more Australia. It's basically the same story. Uh, yeah. We have nothing else other than coal. But we have to get but off But we could have uranium. We okay. could have nuclear, and that's the way I'd go. I think it's the only... Uh, so it's... so if, if we have to get off fossil fuel to mm-hmm. save the planet, your recommendation is... Initially, at least, nuclear. nuclear. Right. The next thing we ought to build is a nuclear station and see what happens and don't give up on solar but give up on it domestic grid connected is not an answer it's right. only a toy any rate and have the, you looked into major solar plants you know, yeah. uh, uh, solar thermal yes. plants and, and how do they compare yeah well uh, cost wise and things like well that. you know are they viable yeah there, there's things like Liddell power station a very large solar scheme going in when it's finally there, I think it's going to be something like 135,000 square metres of collector. Yeah, Big but, long mirrors. but we're not talking about mirrors that reflect to a central tower. Mm. No, not a central tower, no, but above the line. Yeah. About one, two, three, five or six rows of mirrors that are in focus. Oh, okay. To a focal point running oh, down okay. the centre of them. Okay, so it is... And they're quite long. They'd be... Ooh, Hundred metres long, yeah, right. Okay, so they are. I've not actually seen them. But yeah, I've seen no, this is a mid-sized system I haven't heard of before. Mm. Uh, so what that does, it uh, produces steam. That they don't use it 
in a turbine, but it could be used in a turbine. And there's a fair bit of it comes out of it. Right. <laughs> uh, they estimate its value to be about 39 megawatts. So that's, you know, it's not a huge machine, but it's a, it's a sizable hunk yeah. of power. They so can currently use it they, through a heat exchanger to preheat the boiler water going into one of the major boilers. For the coal-fired power mm. station. So that replaces uh, that preheating would previously have to be done by coal. Uh, so this is all nice and automatic. If the sun's shining and it's producing it, well, the coal can be throttled back. It doesn't need it. If the sun disappears well, and it's not producing it, the coal just creeps up. You know, so it's yeah, a, that's quite a good system because mm. you don't have to wind back the generation no. because of this. This mm. actually winds back the amount of coal going into it. Mm. The generators still mm. run 100% efficient, mm. so, it's, so it's keeping the, the generators spinning mm. and it just regulates the fuel source, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, that's no, smart. Smart system. Mm. Um, but it, so, it requires a coal-fired power station to make it work, though. You remove the coal-fired power uh, station, yeah. this system doesn't work. No. Yeah. Uh, people have uh, an irrational, I think, fear of nuclear just because of what it is or what it can be or what it has been, you know, in the, in the past. But as uh, far as safety, the likelihood of one of the modern reactors blowing up or doing any other things they thought to be able to do is pretty, pretty rare, almost impossible. That's a, a hard word, but, you know, it's not a threat. The management of the waste is a threat and a long-term one and something that, you know, you wouldn't readily want to load new future generations up with looking after nuclear waste for 135,000 years or something <laughs> before it's dead uh, is not a nice thought. But neither is uh, if the uh, global warming is being caused by you know, use of energy, looking after nuclear waste, the bigger threat than wiping out half the countries of the world through global warming and mm. sea level rises and all the rest of that sort of thing. That's no, so it's a... Mm. Yeah, what, what, what lesser of two evils in a way. It's a lesser of two evils, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, nuclear fusion, of course, is the, the ultimate... Holy grail. Uh, ultimate holy grail, but yes. I suppose they'll get there, but I think it's a long time away yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's quite right. This is... Well, you, you don't do it for a living because you're retired. Mm. How important is this for you? I think it's important that people should know that uh, you know they're not being conned or anything into believing they're doing the right thing by going this solar thing. Oh, incidentally, uh, I would fully support governments supporting or whatever you like, uh, subsidising, I suppose is the right word, uh, anybody to go the whole hog themselves, go completely off the grid on solar, and you can do it. Then their uh, CO2 footprint in relation to... Uh, uh, electrical energy is gone forever. Okay, so you're saying off the grid, self, mm. you know, your own batteries, yeah, your, own, well, your own storage system, whatever system you choose, yeah. and your own solar panels, wind generation, mm. that's completely valid. Uh, is valid in the CO2 sense. Yes. It's yes. not valid economically because uh, I've done the sum for, for doing it myself. It had cost me sixty-eight or $70,000 to do it. That's over and above the subsidy the government pays at the moment. Uh, and that would save me uh, something like $1,400-something some, dollars a year equivalent forever. 
so it'll take you about but, 50 years to get the money back. Make more than 50 years to pay it off, and it's about twice the uh, expected life life expectancy of the equipment. So yeah. this is purely, but it is uh, very viable from a savings CO two point. Yes, <laughs> and and maybe that's what we need to do. We need to actually put a real monetary value on CO two mm. rather than just. Uh, I've done that in this last paper that uh, just looked at say fifty thousand people taking up the the government's offer of uh, and on the lowest level of it, the one point five uh, grid connected solar. If they subsidise 50,000 customers to go off the grid altogether and kicked in a subsidy of 50,000, which is a pretty big subsidy, it'd cost them $2.75 billion, which is about the cost of a new power station. It would guarantee save 2.8 million tonnes of CO2. That'd be uh, something like $940-odd a tonne, and it could quite easily say it's three and a half million, it's uh, 786 or something. So even allowing that the uh, the solar one does save CO2, if, if it did, if you could have that system that made sure that the solar was uh, ex- detracted from the uh, coal production, it would save about 1.7 million tonnes and that would work out at uh, 890-odd dollars a tonne. In terms of cost to save CO2, it would be a better deal than what we're doing or what they're doing. So the best option is to go 100% self-sufficient off the grid. Yeah, yeah. That's, if, you, if you're going to do it, do that. Yep. That, saves, that saves CO2. There's absolutely yep, or, no or, doubt about it. Yeah, or don't do it at all. Well, yeah, or, yeah, I think so. Instead of spending that money subsidising locals to do it, spend it on doing other things. What's done in Europe and other countries is that uh, they use the pump storage, as it's called, uh, where the well, the solar's available and producing, it drives a pump to pump water from a lower dam up to a higher one. Mm. And mm. then uh, when the sun stops and when you want some power, you let the water come back down again. Yeah, using hydro as a battery yeah. source. Uh, using it as a, like a battery. Yeah. That's fine, but Australia's we, haven't, yeah, we, we, haven't got we don't have the water and we don't have the, the no, mountainous no. country to do it. Well, a little bit. It's done in the snow in the yeah, snowy yeah. scheme, but it's... No, you need big systems. You need big systems. There are other ways of using the solar, and I think the money going into the subsidy of the uh, domestic one would be far better spent doing one or the others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that does stand a chance of working. Okay. Well, in order, in order to wrap this up, how important is this as a retired gentleman... For you to be chasing this down and doing this, <laughs> what does it give you personally? Uh, ooh, makes the brain box work, I suppose. <laughs> Do you enjoy that? Sorry? Do you enjoy that? You enjoy yes. thinking? Yeah. And problem solving and. Hmm. And writing the paper and that uh, sort of thing. Presenting it, uh, learning how to use a keynote on, uh, on the computer and. I would like there to be more debate about this than just the sort of. I would, I would really like to be shown to be totally wrong. That wouldn't worry me one little bit if someone can seriously convince me that I've got it all <laughs> bull by the foot. Mm. I'd be quite happy with that. I don't think I have, mm. and a lot of people I know don't think I have either, <laughs> who are 
Well, they're all oldies like me, but they they come from all sorts of backgrounds. Where and you've had a few of your contemporaries look at this and support you. Yeah, well, there were twenty-two at the presentation yesterday morning. Have you published any of this information other than with U3A? No. It's available though. If anybody likes to send me a thing, I'll send it to them. (laughs) Okay. If anybody wants to get hold of you, they can send me an email at mm-hmm. uh, chat at yourstorypodcast.com and I'll make sure that you get the email. Mm. And maybe we'll stir up a little bit of interest in this. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think the uh, I've tried hard in writing the paper to make it not, you know, highly technical, but still enough stuff there mm. to uh, make your point sort of thing. But... Uh, no, I'd, I'd love somebody to get it and come back and convince me that I'm totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fascinating, Ken. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear another side other than the emotive yeah. uh, Particularly side. Particularly as I'd like it to be. I'm a greenie, I suppose, by nature. I'd love it to be that, you know, you could do it yeah. all with solar. Yeah. But I know you just can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a far better result is, is just begging out there in cutting out the waste all our public buildings, shopping centres, things like that, are overheated to glory. They're overcooled to glory. They're overlit to glory. Domestically, we are, we are very wasteful because power has always been cheap. Mm. If we could cut out the waste, I reckon we'd take... Uh, uh, we could reduce our CO2 by 25 30% just by cutting out the waste and not making the slightest bit of difference to the way we live. Mm. There you go. <laughs> okay, let's wrap up because people are coming home. Mm. Ken, thanks very much for coming on your story and thanks very much for filling me in on uh, another way of looking at the uh, greenhouse issues. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming. Okay. Thanks, man. All right.